Thank you all. Yeah, you can applaud and thank them and thank the Lord for the beautiful music. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2 as we get into God's Word together. You have some notes, of course, in the worship folder, and so you can follow along with where we're going there. Um, you know, a number of years ago, there was a guy that came out with a pop psychology secular book um, called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Show of hands, how many of you remember that book? Yeah, a lot of you. Maybe some of you have read it. It's not worth reading, really, but... Um, that's the title. Um, you know, kind of the idea was we want to all be okay. Um, and the, the message of Romans uh, chapters 1 and 2 that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is that um, I'm not okay, you're not okay, none of us are okay. We are all sinners separated from God and we need God's grace. We need to find our identity in Him. Um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, not a San Francisco 49er football fan, but I did, <laughs> sorry, I did run across uh, the, a, a, a testimony from the quarterback, uh, Purdy is his name, from Iowa, good Iowa roots. And he was so clear about his testimony that his identity is not as a quarterback, it's not in professional football, that his identity is in Christ. Uh, look it up online. I was so, it's just like a, a minute long or something, but man, was it clear. And um, I'm not rooting for that team, but I'm rooting for him. Uh, yeah, amen. <laughs> and uh, um, the, the sooner that we come to the point where we understand that we're not okay, and turn to the one who knows that we're not okay, but at the same time offers the only way of salvation for us, the better off we'll be in our lives and for all eternity. Uh, Jesus does not excuse our sin, but he does die for our sin and forgive us. Uh, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus recognizes that we need help. And I think it's interesting in Romans chapter 1 that Paul refers to, to sinful humanity as they and them and kind of the fingers pointed outwards. You can, I've got it on the outline all the times that it's mentioned in chapter 1. And then Paul catalogs our sinfulness in detail as we've looked at at the end of chapter 1. And and then suddenly spins the pronoun from pointing outward to pointing inward at us, at you, uh, in the chapter, in the, in the first verses of chapter two that we're gonna, we're gonna read uh, in just a bit. But the switch seems to be from humanity um, in, in general to, to, to everyone reading the letter, maybe those without God, to, to everyone, that, that's us. In a sense, we're, it's like we're all on trial before God. Uh, in chapter 3, Paul talks about how one is saved, but in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about how if a person is truly saved, then on some level it will be evident for them. 
you know, people are at different places when they, when they come to faith. Uh, and so, you know, it, we might look at someone and say, well, boy, they're a long way from where we're at. Well, that's the point. They're maybe a long way from where they started. And so we need to understand that people start in different places. Um, but it's important to know that, that we are supposed to have something as, as, if we're following Christ, people should be able to look at us and see something of, of what Christ is doing in our lives. You know, we have opportunities all week long to be able to talk to people, to be able to be a light for them. I, I hear about them, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, I, I'm jealous for all of you because I'd love for all of you to hear all the stories from all of you that I get to hear, of you reaching out to people, of finding someone that needs help, and, and just helping them, and, and encouraging them. And, and that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live as lights for the Lord wherever we are. And I, 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 like I said, I know that many of you are doing that and, and just keep on doing that. I, I read this last week about a, a young gal who's a new Christian and, and she ran across a guy who, uh, who was not able to, had lost his job because of health reasons, cancer, he was fighting cancer and needed a surgery not related to the cancer and couldn't afford it. And, and she said, again, she's a new Christian. She didn't know if this could happen or not, but she said, maybe my church can help. And she went to her pastor and the pastor said, yeah, well, helping them. The man, the, the guy was an atheist. He had actually brought, he's from Henderson, Texas. He had brought a, a case against um, the city for having a manger scene. And he was just not having any religion at all. The church ended up helping him significantly, almost paid completely for the surgery. And he didn't become a Christian, but maybe as a gesture of what he was feeling and, and maybe on the way to becoming a Christian, he actually bought a star for the top of the manger and said, I'll let you guys figure out how to plug this in and make it work, but here it is. I think that's pretty cool. Um, so how is your faith showing to the people around you? Yeah, people that you think don't know you're a Christian, don't know that you go to church, oftentimes have higher expectations for, for you as a Christian than, than we do for ourselves. But we have an opportunity to, to show them what Jesus is really like. That's what a Christian means. A Christian is a little Christ. We're all little Christs out there in the world. Well, let's read our passage, Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And remember, this isn't about the person sitting next to you. This is about you and me, all of us. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. 
when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This is God's word. You know, it's generally not too hard uh, to get people to admit that they're not, uh, that they're sinners, you know, no one's perfect, right? We say that. Um, but they have a hard time agreeing with the fact that God's wrath should be equally on our lesser sins, like maybe envy or disobeying parents, to the same degree that those who are guilty of the greater sins like murder or rape that just doesn't seem right to them. Our, our thinking is, is wrong when we think that God doesn't mean what he says about his judgment on us being for all sins. And I think there are a couple of problems here, a couple of reasons for this. You've got them on your outline. Number one, we don't really understand God's holiness. We fail to see that God is supreme and unmatched and perfect in, his, in who he is. He's infinitely above us. And then next, we don't really understand our sinfulness. We, we forget that we're made in the image of God. And that every time we sin, it communicates a distortion of that image to the rest of creation. I think one of the best examples here is the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, in one of his first letters in 2 Corinthians 11, says, I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles. He's defending his apostleship, but that was his view of himself. In, in one of kind of his middle letters uh, in Ephesians, he, he writes, I am the very least of all the saints. And then in one of his last letters in 1 Timothy 1, Paul describes himself as the worst sinner of all. 
So you would think that as he gets closer to God, he would see his holiness and he would see, wow, what a great holy man I am. I'm humble about it, but I'm great. That's not what Paul says. Um, In other words, I think as Paul matured and grew in his vision of God and his holiness, the more he grew, the the greater he saw his sin. The the more clearly he saw his sinfulness before God. And, And so as we grow closer to the Lord, we will be more and more conscious of our sin. But you see the progression for Paul as he grows in Christ? You can match me with the least of the apostles. I am the, 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 the chief among sinners. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the chief among all sinners. And so that should be, I think, our attitude as we come before God. And, and so on your outline, you have this. God, and this is really the, the, if I could boil this, what we're talking about today, down to one sentence, this is it. It's a blank to fill in. God is completely and perfectly holy, and his judgment is faultless. God is completely and perfectly holy and his judgment is faultless. And that's really what the first 16 verses of of Romans chapter 2 are about. As we come to understand or confirm our understanding in God's perfect judgment, like the Apostle Paul, that will bring health to our souls. That will cause us to, to love him more, to see ourselves more clearly as we see him more clearly. So as followers of Jesus, our goal is to, to, to better depend on him and the power of his Holy Spirit to live our lives in the world. Uh, and, and for the unbeliever here, there, there's a strong encouragement for us to see that in, with clarity our sinfulness before God, that we have no excuse. So in these verses, there are three truths, I think, that become very clear to us. And the first one is that God's judgment is inescapable. That's number one on the outline. We look back at Paul's list at the end of chapter one, and we think, this isn't me, I'm just not that bad. But, but let me ask you, between you and the Lord right now, just in your own heart, how do you determine what's good and bad? And maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like we have a few people in mind when we think of bad people. Yeah, Hitler's at the top of the list. If we know first century history at all, we know Nero is the one who persecuted and killed thousands and thousands of Christians for their faith. Uh, And maybe we look at the New Testament, we look at Judas, we think those are bad people. And then we look at good people, you know, there's the classic good people we look at, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, they're good people. And in the middle, we have this huge group of, of the rest of us in the middle, and, and we think, okay, so uh, sometimes I'm good, sometimes I'm bad. That's wh- where we usually we put ourselves, right? Somewhere in the middle there. And maybe within that category, in the middle, us middle people, we, we mentally rank others in, in the order that, of their goodness. Some are good, some are not so good. So what's our measuring stick? It's you. It's me. When we're measuring other people, we're measuring it by us. You know, it's funny, when I was a, I I thought, I think it's kind of funny, but when I was a student at Wheaton College, um, I would meet students from Moody Bible Institute, and we would go, there was an outreach at at Cook County Jail in Chicago, and we would uh, 
they had this Bible study. We'd watch a Moody Science film. Any of you remember Moody Science films? Some of you do. <laughs> and, uh, and then we'd break up into small groups, and I'd lead a small group. Even those in prison would rank themselves by how bad their crime was. It's like, these are the bad guys over here, and, and we're, we're a lot better than them. I was like, aren't you guys all in jail? It's like, but with Paul, we all agree that God, in verse two, that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice evil. And Paul reminds us the same judgment that we call down on others falls on us. God's judgment says, and this is again on your outline, that no one will be saved without Christ. One reason is that God's judgment is according to the truth. Look at verse two. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on what? On truth. And we know God's word is truth. Did Jesus praise that? In, in John 17, in, in the great high priestly prayer, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus said just a few chapters earlier in John, I am the truth. And so that's the basis of, of the judgment. It's according to truth. You know, witnesses in court are told to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We all know that. But obviously, human judgment at best is partial truth. Our perspective, as much as we want to think it's a great perspective, is a limited perspective. God's judgment is infinitely superior to human judgment. It's according to full knowledge. It's according to perfect truth. Because all of our hearts are open for God to see. And no one can lie. No one can misrepresent the truth before God. And so I guess that's my, my, my challenge for you is, is to be honest with God when you pray. You're not hiding anything from God. You're not telling him anything new when you pray. So be completely honest in your prayers. You know, there are all kinds of prayers. You want to know how to pray? Look at the Psalms. I mean, those are David's prayers. And, and we have studied the, the prayers of the Bible. How many of us have said at one time or another, why can't we just get rid of all the evil in the world? There's so much evil in the world. And what we might even feel resentful for God, not removing evil. And what we forget is that eliminating evil in the world means that he would need to eliminate us. Right? Because what we're really saying is eliminate all the evil that's worse than me. Because for God to eliminate all evil, we'd all be in trouble. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Back to verse one for a second. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You who pass judgment do the same thing. And so if God's judgment falls on everyone because God's standard is righteous, it's holy, it's perfection, why are we still alive? Why are we still here? Well, it, it, look at verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's on the outline. Why are we still alive? Because of grace. Because of the grace of God. 
In other words, the idea of grace is, the, 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 in Greek, it's really a gift. That's what grace means. It's a gift. And, and salvation is a gift. And our, our very life is a gift from God. A gift is something that you haven't worked for in, in grace. It's something that you don't pay for. It's free. It's free to you. It's costly, but it's free. And so whatever else great grace means, it is a free gift of God. By grace, we live the kind of life that God wants every one of his children to live. And so verse four talks about the riches of God's kindness. In other words, God has these huge resources of kindness to pour out on us. In fact, what does God's kindness do? God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so the ultimate kindness is God forgiving us, forgiving our sins. That's why he sent Jesus to die for our sins. You know, we think of the beginning of the Reformation with, uh, or at least I do, with the nailing of the 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg. Um, the very first thesis that Martin Luther wrote says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's thesis number one of the 95 theses. And so, in other words, the gospel is for every day. It's for every Christian at every moment to live a life of repentance before God. That, that should be our continual posture. We're finding ourselves, it's like the Apostle Paul. It's continually going before the Lord and saying, Lord, where have I sinned? And, and, and looking at his holiness and examining our lives, not by the person next to us, but by God's holiness. And, and, the, and the deeper our love in, for God grows, the clearer we will see our sin. And we confess that sin. We repent from that sin. We do an about face and run from that sin. And so genuine repentance is rooted in a high value of God. We're not valuing ourselves. We're valuing who God is. And so that should be our continual posture to turn away from sin and toward God's holiness. The issue is not, have you been baptized? The issue is not, are you a member of a church? The issue is not, have you prayed a prayer of salvation? You can pray a prayer of salvation in your head and not be a Christian. You've got to meet it in your life and in your heart. God sees our heart. He sees not what you say, but if what you say matches with what your heart says. And so are we looking at our heart? And, and we need to examine our hearts. And what, what God leads you to is repentance. That means there's a, a profound change of mind and heart that we are learning to hate sin and hate hypocrisy. And we turn to Jesus in humility and in faith and, and because we know he alone is our only hope. I, I'll tell you what, I... As a, as a young man was not a Christian and was without hope in this world and going in a very wrong direction. And, and in, in my personal testimony, I had three 
non-Christian friends come and tell me that I should become a Christian because my life was so messed up. And, and they were, we were all kind of a part of, of what was kind of the Jesus movement. It was uh, a guy who'd come out, out to Wichita, Kansas from Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And, uh, and he was, uh, he, had, he somehow got a chance to speak in a government class at my high school. It had nothing to do with government. <clears throat> but almost the entire class uh, came to faith in Christ and repented. I went on a retreat. These non-Christian friends invited me to go on a retreat. And I heard the gospel for the first time. And I and my three friends all became Christians that weekend. But my life was going in a wrong direction. I was without hope. Uh, yeah. I just got caught stealing a car. Uh, right before I went on that retreat, my mom almost didn't let me go on the retreat because of that. And uh, it's like, <laughs> by God's grace. And then, and then I, I come to faith and, and man, I... I didn't know what a Bible study was, but the next week after I became a Christian, I was in six Bible studies out of seven <laughs> nights of the week. I kept hearing about other Bible studies, like, what, you can do this? With? It was amazing. And my mom actually called the pastor of the church that I had started going to and said, what have you done to my son? <laughs> He's carrying his Bible, he insists on carrying his Bible to school. He's wearing all these pins that say, Jesus loves you. And, What's going on? What have you done with my son? And the pastor said, well, would you rather him being involved in, in drinking and drugs like he was? I mean, I was, it, the drugs I'm talking about are legal today, so don't, it's not. <laughs> or would you rather him carrying a Bible? Um, anyway, I, I was without hope in this world. And when our life is over on earth, God will give us either eternal life or eternal death. Heaven or hell await us when we die, and both will last forever. That's what the Bible says. The second truth that becomes clear is that God's judgment is absolutely perfect and, and fair. You know, it was nearly um, 30 years ago, uh, April 22nd, 1993, that was the first official take your child to work day. Well, long before that, um, I was about 10 years old. My dad, who's an attorney, took me to work with him. It was really fun. He had this big old, his office was in this big old building downtown, 901 North Broadway, and um, Dodd and Godwin uh, it was his partner. And um, he had... Secretaries, one of his secretaries was a cheerleader at Wichita State basketball, so I'd see her because my parents had season tickets, so I'd see her cheering, and then I'd see her in my dad's office, and I, I was pretty impressed with that. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, my dad, I remember, took me to jail to meet with one of his clients in that, you know, those little rooms you see with a table, and I just remember being so wide-eyed. I was like, oh my gosh, uh, we're with a criminal. What did he do? You know, anyway, I was... I was pretty impressed. And then he took me to court, and uh, it seemed so ominous and, and, and big and official, a judge up there, you know, with his gavel and my dad. I just remember my dad cross-examining a witness and making them cry, and I was like, oh, this is really serious. 
Um, I, I just remember that, that, that whole experience. Well, you know, at the end of days, there will be a, a courtroom that's terrifying beyond what anything here would ever be, where all that we have thought, every thought, will be laid bare before the Lord, who is the judge. And if you know Jesus, Jesus is like, he's our advocate. He's our attorney. He will stand up and he will say, Lord, yes, they have sinned, but you, you must see them through me because I'm representing them in this court. That's what you want. That's what we all need is Jesus to represent us. And so the thoughts and actions of every person will be laid on the scale. They will be weighed and they will be found wanting. And look at verses five and six. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his judgment, righteous judgment will be revealed. So we don't want to have an unrepentant heart. We have to live a life of repentance before God. And that's when money and power and race and color and religion and anything else you can think of will not matter. It will count for nothing. The standard will be the same for everyone. Those who have access to God's law and those who don't. And, and, and the standard will be perfect. And look at verse 6 again. God will repay each person according to what they have done. And verse 6 here is actually just a quotation from Psalms and Proverbs. And Jesus repeats it in Matthew 16. You've got the Psalm and Proverb reference there. It's Matthew 16, 7. And then described in detail in the book of Revelation. Paul is just clarifying that each person will be judged by their actions. Not saved by them. We're not saved by what we do, but we're judged by what we do. So verse seven, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So all of our deeds throughout our life would never be enough to equal the righteousness of God. Another, not even close. And so we all fall short. Even Billy Graham, even Mother Teresa, they cannot stand on their own righteousness. They stand only on the righteousness of Christ. That's it. And Paul's point is in verse 11. God does not show favoritism. You want to underline one verse in this passage? Underline verse 11. God does not show favoritism. What Paul is saying is if you're trusting in your deeds to give you somehow eternal life and thinking that God will overlook the minor sins in your life, you're wrong. He will not overlook any sin. It's all judged by his righteousness. And so you've got this on your outline. At the final judgment, God's holy character is the standard and our goodness will be compared to his, not to anyone else's. And we will all be found guilty. And so God's judgment is impartial. In, in human courts, we can often find the accused. Uh, you know, we all see this on the news. It seems like the rich always receive preferential treatment. They know the judge. They know who to donate to. I don't know what they know, but God does not show favoritism. He will not. He cannot. 
because that's who he is. And so if you ever thought of saying, well, my mother sang in the choir, or I was a member of a church, or I did this or that at the church, or my grandfather was a preacher, forget it. None of it will work. There are no special favors in this courtroom. That's why it's so terrifying. And then the third truth that becomes clear in these verses is that God's judgment is universal. You know the old saying, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, Seems especially appropriate in light of Paul's words here. We all intend to do well. And so we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions here. Do, Do you act on even the knowledge that you have? Do you follow the prompts when, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit prompts you to go and talk to someone? Or go and share the gospel with a friend? Or do you follow even the prompts that God gives you? No, we don't ever follow them perfectly. We all want to follow them better. We, we should strive to follow those prompts better. But when we act, are our actions, are, are they righteous? Are, are they from, let's just say, are they from pure motives? I, I heard, um, I think it was Billy Graham being interviewed one time, and he said, you know, I don't know if I've ever done anything from a pure, 100% pure motive. This Billy Graham is one of the holy guys. How does that work? Some might take issue with the apostle's statement in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That hardly seems fair, because how can someone be justly punished for breaking rules he knew nothing about? Well, God will be fair. Like, like we said, do you even follow what, you, what your conscience tells you is right and wrong? And we don't. The answer is no, we don't. The Gentiles living in places far removed from the promised land. They've never met a Jew in their lives who, a single Hebrew that kept the law. But every man and woman, like we read in chapter one, bears the image of God, although soiled by sin, we bear the image of God. We have no excuse because we look out at creation and we see what God has done and we know that we're responsible to him. And so here's what Paul's saying in bullet points. You've got them on your outline. We all have a sense in our hearts that some actions are good and others are bad. One's understanding of good may not be perfect. Even by this imperfect standard, no one lives a righteous life. No one has even perfectly obeyed his or her own conscience. And when we do something against our own conscience, we feel guilt. And that's, all, that's the way God made us. But we're, the bottom line, though, is that we're all without excuse. And so when the final verdict was given, the deeds of each person will have been considered and found lacking. And so you've got it on your outline. Each individual will be judged according to their understanding of what is right and wrong. And whether it is by the law of Moses or one's own conscience, each person will be found guilty because they're judged by the righteousness of God. And so in verse 13, we see the perfection of God's judgment. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So Paul anticipates what some people are thinking, that this is unfair, because the Jews have had the advantage of God's written word. And and we have the advantage of God's written word. 
And so Paul explains with precision the fairness at which God carries out his judgment. Starting in verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness. And their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets, thought, secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so with the precision of the finest surgeon, God judges those who have access to his word and who don't. He will always be fair. He's perfect in his judgment. No one can escape the condemnation because we all fall short of our own moral standards, much less God's. And so, you know, one thing that we need to talk about here is us judging others. And this really goes back to verse 1. But, but the Greek word used here for judge is the same word that's used in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. So neither Paul nor Jesus means that we should ignore or condone the wrongs of others. That's not the point here of judging. I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 um, he confronts a man with his sin. But Paul is very clear that his end goal is to get this person on, on their feet again, spiritually, so that they can know God's forgiveness on the day of judgment. But Paul confronts the sin. So we're not supposed to ignore sin. And of course we're to hold someone accountable, but we're also to be aware of our own motives. And so uh, there's some questions here that we can ask ourselves, you have on the outline. Are we guilty of being self-righteous and indifferent to the well-being of others? Do we point out the sins of others and then show them no mercy? Do we harbor feelings of superiority and use the wrongs of others to advance our own interests? And are we guilty of deflecting attention from our own guilt by accusing others? Why are the answers to these questions so important? Well, because Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, 2, for you will, you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And, and that passage goes on, and I encourage you to read the rest of it, but the significance of this goes back to verse 1 of, of Romans 2. In that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. So the only way we can confront the sins of others is with a humble attitude, with an, a spirit of grace, because we know that God will judge us in the same way we judge others. So according to these first 16 verses of Romans chapter two, a person who is truly redeemed will seek to live a, a holy life before God. And a person who does not display any evidence of a holy life uh, will, will lay no claim on eternal life. And so he's going to look at our actions. That's how we will be judged again, not how we become a Christian. We become a Christian by grace through faith alone. And so the message of God's judgment is this. However dark your sin, however much you have successfully hidden your sin, God says to you, surely your sin will find you out, for I will bring every deed into judgment, even the things that are hidden. And so God says, turn from your sin so that I will, I, I, I will destroy that. I, I will destroy all evil. 
I will judge sin. But I desire, God says, to show mercy. And I love you. I gave my son for you. And so come to me so that I can give you my mercy. I just want to end with this. Uh, Lieutenant Bridewell was a Christian. He was walking uh, on the steps or walking down the hallway of the Pentagon on 9-11 when an 80-ton aircraft going at a 520 miles an hour flew right into where he was. And it knocked him over, knocked him. He lost consciousness for a bit. He came to, he was surrounded by fire. He knew he needed to get up and run. But he was disoriented. He didn't know which way to run. But as a Christian, he knew that his hands were in, his life was in God's hands. And so he stood up and he said he yelled at the, stop, at the top of his lungs and ran, picked a direction and ran and said, Jesus, I'm coming to see you. And as a Christian, he didn't know if he was running towards life or death. But he still knew that either way, he was heading in the right direction. Because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's more Christ. And as a Christian, we don't have to wonder what direction to run in. We run to Jesus. He alone has the answer. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the Savior. Help us to always be completely honest before you. I thank you that your judgment is perfect. And we at the same time thank you that your invitation is clear to all who receive you, to those who accept you, to those who believe in your name, you give the right to become your children. Father, we want to strive to be like you, but we know we'll never arrive. So help us, Lord, to live a life of repentance. We love you so much. If there's anyone here who's never received you, may they just right now say, Lord, I need you in my life. Please be my Lord, be my Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And from the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans, now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen.